Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Well, good morning, church. How are we this morning? Good, good. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them up to Ruth chapter 4. That is where we will uh, be today, and uh, you can mark this down as a record that we are actually finishing a book of the Bible in under two months. Um, so six weeks, uh, six weeks we've been in Ruth, and it's been a good time in Ruth so far. And uh, so again, we're going to be wrapping it up today, Ruth 4, 13 through 22. And uh, next week we will uh, observe Palm Sunday, and then the following week will be Easter, uh, if you can believe that. I mean, it just feels like we were uh, just in 2020. It really just feels like we were just in March of 2020, and so um, it is kind of flown by in, in a lot of ways. And so we'll be celebrating that over the next couple of weeks before we jump into another series um, following Easter. But when we started Ruth six weeks ago, uh, when we opened up the book, we were immediately met with uh, destruction, death, and despair. All right, that, that's kind of the, the beginning of this little beautiful love story that we see kind of nestled in the larger, uh, bigger love story of God and His people. And so this little love story is really just a beautiful narrative for us. It, it reads like a story. Um, and, and, it, and it was great, but it did not have a great beginning. And so again, we were met with destruction, death, and despair. And by destruction, I mean that in that time, Bethlehem was experiencing a famine. And because they were experiencing a famine, you had this family, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And Elimelech made a bad decision. He made a poor decision for his family. Again, he's in Bethlehem. He's in uh, the, the, the place where God's presence resides and where God's people are. And he chooses to leave that because he sees an opportunity in another place where, called Moab. And he sees there that there is not a famine over there. And so maybe he sees a better job opportunity, whatever it looks like. And so he says, you know, I'm going to take my family there. I'm going to leave God's presence. I'm going to leave God's people. And that was strike number one for him. Leaving God's presence and leaving God's people. So I don't care what your circumstances look like. The number one thing you don't want to do is leave God's presence and God's people. But that's what he chooses to do. And so he moves his family to Moab. And that was strike number two. God had forbidden his people to go to Moab due to the fact that they were the wrong people, the wrong tribe, the wrong religion, uh, the wrong ancestry uh, channel and line and legacy. Just everything about the Moabite people was not good for God's people to interact with. And so he was forbidden them to go there. But again, Elimelech chose to go, strike number two. And then when they're there, Elimelech, who went to find life, ultimately ends up dying. And then his two sons, they take then Moabite wives, which again was strike number three. God told them in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy not to marry Moabite women. And so again, you see this kind of playing itself out of poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. And where they left Bethlehem, that was experiencing a famine, to go to Moab to ultimately experience life, they were met with death. And so literally, we went from destruction to death, and we saw three funerals right out of the gate. Elimelech dies. Malon dies. Kelion dies. And their names literally translate sick and dying. 
And so this was not going well for them. Not going well for them. And not only that, but another problem that Elimelech had was that he did not plan well. He did not leave any sort of plan for his family, not any sort of means for a legacy for, uh, for, for his family to be taken care of after he was gone. And so Naomi, once Elimelech passes away, and then once Malon and Kilian both die as well, Naomi finds herself then in despair. She finds herself with her daughters-in-law with no plan, no provision, no livelihood, no sort of protection, nothing. And so the only thing that we saw in chapter 1 that was good was the fact that Naomi had the sense to look back at Bethlehem and to see what's going on over there. And so after 10 years of being away from God's people and God's presence, Naomi has the sense to move back to Bethlehem, to get back to God's presence and God's people. And as she makes that move back, unfortunately, she's like anti-evangelism. She's like anti-Christian at this point. She is very, uh, she's in a tough place with God, all right? She, she's not excited about what God is doing in her life. She's experiencing despair. And so she actually tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their people, to go back to their families, back to their uh, worship of the demon god Chemosh, the pagan uh, lifestyles that they were living, the sensuality and sexual immorality that's going on amongst the Moabite people. She says, go back to that. Because again, she's, she's struggling right now with her faith, and with her walk with God. But one of the things that we saw in there is we saw Ruth. Ruth makes a choice, and this is one of the biggest conversion stories that we see in the first chapter. Ruth makes a choice where she says, I'm not going to go back to my people. I'm not going to go back to that way of living. I'm going to turn, and I'm going to focus on loving you, Naomi, and I'm going to focus on loving your God. Wherever you go, I'm going to go, and your God is going to be my God. And so we see this conversion story happen with Ruth where she then follows Naomi and comes back with Naomi to Bethlehem. And that's a risk on her part because her being a Moabite woman coming into uh, God's presence among God's people, again, her, God's people have been commanded, don't interact with the Moabite women. And so her coming into it is taking a big risk that I'm going to come in potentially to an area where I'm not welcomed where I'm not um, uh, going to experience any sort of maybe friendly uh, interactions with the people. But that's not what we see happen. What we see happen play out is really the heart of God for the marginalized, the heart of God for those who are vulnerable, the heart of God for those who are pushed to the outskirts of society. And we see Naomi and Ruth come in, and we see Ruth do the only thing that she can do is, is I need to provide. I need to help our, our family. I need to be able to take care of Naomi. I'm committed to Naomi. And so we see in chapters 2 and 3, Ruth just stepping up as this exemplary woman to be able to go out and to be able to trust in the provision of the Lord to be able to take care of her and Naomi. And we see this because as she's now growing in her faith, as she's now growing in the instruction of the Lord and the God of Israel, she knows that God has commanded His people to make sure that for those who are wealthy, to be able to leave provision for those who are without. And so that's where we then meet Boaz who comes into the story. We meet Boaz who is a wealthy landowner. He runs a company. He has employees. And he operates his company very much like a pastor to a church. He comes in and he is worshiping among his employees. The Lord be with you and the Lord bless you. And they're just interacting with each other in this way. And Ruth happens to come into Boaz's fields. 
And I say that because it's, it's not just by happen chance that she stumbles into this. This is God's providence. God's providence brings her into the fields of Boaz, and Boaz takes notice of her. Hey, who is this young woman who is gleaning among the fields? And what that means is after his employees have basically gone through and harvested all the crops, those who were impoverished were allowed to come into the fields and be able to eat into the profits. Whatever was left over, we're going to be able to come in and take that to provide for ourselves. And one of the things that we see Boaz do in his generosity with the heart of God, he not only allows Ruth to be able to come in and glean his crops, but he then invites her to their uh, midday meal, which, for, which was for his employees to have uh, above and beyond fullness and satisfaction so that workers would then be able to go out and do the job well done. And he invites Ruth to that so that she can be full and satisfied. And not only that, but for her to have even extra. I mean, she's taking a doggy back home as well to be able to provide for Naomi also. So the generosity of Boaz allows Ruth to also be full and satisfied and to be generous for herself. You're starting to see this kind of picture of a type of Christ where Christ so provides for us that we are then able to be generous and provide for others. And that's exactly what's happening in the story at this point. And so then Boaz takes it a step further and says, let's let Ruth also glean among our reapers, is what they were called, among the employees. As they're going out, let Ruth go with them. And as she's continuing to work, I love the phrase that we see in chapter 2 and 3, is that God, or Boaz, he's telling his reapers, drop handfuls on purpose. So instead of just letting them be able to get the leftovers, it's as you're gathering it, literally bundle it up and set it to the side so that as she's coming through, she's able to, to glean even above and beyond. And as she's working from dawn till dusk, I mean, she's not, just, she's not having a passive faith. It is a working faith where she is going out and God is providing for her and Naomi that in one day's work, she's able to take home two weeks' worth of wages, essentially. She's able to, to, to bring in a lot of provision for her and Naomi. And that's what we see happening throughout this. And not only that, Boaz again takes it a step further and he invites community around Ruth. He wants her to be able to not only interact with, with gleaning in the fields, but also interact with the young women within his company, within his employees, so that she can have a godly community wrapped around her to be able to pour into her and encourage her and to provide whatever she needs emotionally, spiritually, physically, all of those things. And so we see the generosity that's happening here. And then we moved into chapter 4 last week. Um, and chapter 4, I was, I was really excited to preach that one, but I was sick. And so I texted Josh at like 4 a.m. and I said, you're up. Uh, just pull something out of your back pocket and, and preach it. And so I'm glad that he was able to kind of step into that uh, last week. But what we saw last week really was, was again, God providing. God providing. Because what happened was, we saw something awkward happen in chapter 3. The end of chapter 3 was we got some bad counsel from Naomi. All right, Naomi, knowing that she's having some issues with her field, uh, knowing that she's having some issues with legacy, knowing that she's having some issues with not sure how we're going to be taken care of long term. All right? right now we're in harvest season, but we're coming to the end of it. What happens when we get into the winter? And what happens when we, you know, next year and so long? She needs to figure something out. So she dresses Ruth up, all right? At this point, Boaz has seen Ruth working in the fields. Let's get her dressed up. 
Let's get her looking nice. Let's put the best makeup on her and the best outfit. And let's go put her in front of Boaz. And so Naomi encourages her to go down to the threshing floor, which is where they would basically divide up and figure out how much profit they made for the season. Let's let her go there. This was a celebration at the end of season. And oftentimes, those who were the owners of their companies would then uh, go to sleep at the end of their harvest, at the end of their grain, in order to protect it so that no one would come in and steal it. And so as Boaz is going to basically lay down for the night after he's had a good time at the party, the threshing floor, Naomi encourages Ruth to go and lay down at her feet, or at his feet. And whenever he wakes up, ask him what you are to do. It's not a good place to put yourself in, all right? And it was not good advice from Naomi to tell Ruth to go and do that, essentially prostituting her out. But what we see Boaz do is when he wakes up, and he asks, who are you? Again, he's only seen her in the fields, all right? She's all dolled up at this point, and so she's, she's looking good, okay? He's not recognizing her at this moment. Maybe he's a little groggy-eyed at first. But he asks who she is, and she says, I'm Ruth, one of the servants that has been in your fields. And he says, I know a lot about you. You are a worthy woman. All right, he's, he's encouraging and reminding her of who she is, not necessarily the position that she's putting herself in. You are a worthy woman. And that's spoken of amongst the townspeople, which is great considering the fact of where Ruth comes from. She's so now loving the Lord and following in the ways of the Lord that the townspeople don't view her as Ruth the Moabite, but they view her as a worthy woman, the same language used of the Proverbs 31 woman. So an exemplary woman. And so he's, again, admonishing this and encouraging, you are a worthy woman. And what she actually does on that spot is essentially is a proposal. Hey, will you spread your wings over me? Would you be willing to marry me in order to then redeem our family legacy, in order to redeem our land and be able to take care of us forever? And Boaz, again, smitten by Ruth, seeing who she is, is not dumb and says, all that you ask, I'm, I'm game for. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. I would love to marry you. However, there's an obstacle. According to their law, you had to be the closest redeemer to the family in order to have the right to marry. And so what Boaz is then explaining is, is there is someone who is in line, first position, to be able to marry you and have the legal right to do that. So in order for me in second position to be able to marry you, he has to refuse his right to marry you. And so what we saw last week is, is, is Boaz trusting in the providence of God, and he goes to this place called the gate. And the gate kind of sounds weird, but that's where they would transact and conduct business. That's where they would do all of it. It's kind of like the court of the city. And so Boaz, knowing that he is in second position, needing to get into first position, wants to go to the gates, hoping that he'll run into John Doe the Redeemer, because we don't know his name. He wants to run into John Doe the Redeemer, and see if he can present the facts to him about the land with Naomi and about the right to marry Ruth and to see if he can get himself in first position. Because he loves Ruth. He wants to marry Ruth. He wants to do this. But he has to do it right. He has to have a plan. He has to do it right because he's a godly man. Boaz is a godly man. And so he goes and he just sits down at the gate. And this is what I love because it comes back to God's providence. 
is Bethlehem is not a small town. Like when you think of Bethlehem, like sometimes I always picture it, the scene of kind of like the, uh, uh, your, your Christmas scene, your nativity scene. There's just a couple of people there, maybe 300 at most, small town. That's what I envision when I think of Bethlehem. But at the time of Jesus' birth, it's about 25,000 people. It's not a small town. So just by happen chance to run into somebody is not going to be as easy as it was like in my hometown, where if you just wanted to run into somebody, you just go to Walmart and you're going to see them. Like that's the way it was for me growing up. So if you wanted to avoid running into people, don't go to Walmart. So here it was by happen chance, he's just hoping that he runs into the Redeemer. And what we saw in chapter 4, verse 1, is that behold, he shows up. And I love that. He just, behold, he shows up. Like he sits down, he's waiting for, for John Doe to come, and there he is. And I can kind of even picture seeing Boaz being so excited that, that there he is. I need to see, I need to talk to you. Will you come and sit down with me here for a moment? And one of the things that I want to mention just briefly about that, I'm not going to go through the whole sermon that I had prepped for last week, but the thing that I do want to, again, continue to push for us is that is God's providence. When we think of God's providence, usually there's two ways in which we think of it. We think of it in the one hand of how God works in the miracle, how God works in the supernatural, how God works like he did with Moses. I mean, how many of us have ever been walking through a desert and just saw a bush catch on fire and it just started speaking to you? All right, if you raise your hand, we need to talk. <laughs> but God hasn't worked with us like that. Or how many of us have ever been you know, walking with some friends, and we came up to a large body of water. Don't know if you've ever seen one. There's not that many of those around here. But we come to a large body of water. You've got to get to the other side. You don't have a boat, and the water just parked for you. Like that happened with Moses. God oftentimes works in the supernatural in a miracle type of way. And for us, I think a lot of times, that's how we want God to work in our lives, is miracles, supernatural. I remember when I was a younger believer and I would always pray and I'm looking for God to answer my prayer, I would do this every single time. I'd walk outside at nighttime, I'd look up at the stars and I'd say, God, if you want me to do this, make it clear to me by sending a shooting star right now. So I just kind of always put the fleece out there. Like, let's just, if you want me to make this decision, send me a shooting star. And I would just stand there, stand there for a long time. And then I remember one time needing to make a decision Went out, was looking for a shooting star. It never came. I was like, I need to go use the restroom. So I went inside, used the restroom, and I looked down, and there happened to be a cleaner with a comment on the front of it. And I said, that's good enough for me. Like, I'll take that, all right? And, uh, and then I moved to Michigan because I just made the decision based on that. Wouldn't recommend that. But <laughs> oftentimes we want God to operate in the supernatural. But he also has his hand of providence which is not in a miracle supernatural way, but is oftentimes in every ordinary day of life, in the mundane, in the natural, not supernatural. An angel's not showing up. And what we see here in the book of Ruth is that the entire book of Ruth is in God's providence where it's through his hand of natural. They're going to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Nothing miraculous is happening. When he's waiting for this Redeemer to show up, what would have been supernatural is if when John Doe came up to the gate, 
Lightning struck him dead. And then God brought a cloud out and led Boaz through day by the cloud to Elimelech's land and then said, it's all yours. That would have been supernatural, but that's not what happened. He used his hand of providence in order to then work through Boaz's planning and skillful business making in order to win Ruth, essentially. That's what he did. And for us, that's how probably 99% of our walk with the Lord is operating, is in that invisible hand of God, of providence. The Puritans use kind of the illustration of a loom. And I know when you're looking at me, you're like, he is an expert knitter. Is it even called, is it a knitter? Or is it, is it a different term for it? Anyways, knitting, I'm not an expert on it. But there was this one time where I did, uh, as a child, I, I knitted together a pot holder for my mom. It was like a school project or something. And it was terrible. I think she still has it in her kitchen drawer. But anyways, when I was using this little handheld loom, I remember looking at the bottom side of it. And there was no pattern to it. It was like frayed. There was all kinds of knots. Like from the bottom, looking at the loom, looking at the pattern, I, can't, I couldn't really see what I'm making. But then when you flip it over on the top and you're looking at it from the top down, you're able to see a pattern, a design, a tapestry, a work of art. It wasn't a work of art in my, my case. But most of the time when people are using a loom, looking at it from the top down, they see the work of art. That's God's providence. We are living our lives under the loom. When we're looking up at it, we're seeing frays, we're seeing knots, we're seeing all kinds of weird things, but we can't see how God is really weaving together all the events of our lives. How He's pulling things in and out in order to make His will come to fruition in our lives. He's seeing the beautiful design, and we're seeing it from the bottom. But He's weaving and He's working. That's His providence. And oftentimes we want to be able to see it through the windshield, but we only see His providence when we're looking through the rear view. We're able to look back on our life and we're able to say, that's why I met that person. Or that's why I entered into that business deal. Or that's why I was able to do this. Or that's why I joined this church. It makes sense now as I look back on it, what God was doing when in the moment I didn't see it clearly. I didn't see it clearly. And so we worship oftentimes in past tense as his provision is being rolled out. And so here is the provision of God for Boaz to be at the right place at the right time. And behold, John Doe shows up. And as Josh kind of preached in last week, he had to use some negotiation skills in order to bring about his position from second to first. And what it really boiled down to was there was a difference in motivation between the two guys. The first place guy, John Doe, was only seeing the transaction as an investor. As an investor, is this good for a return on my investment? Where Boaz was seeing the transaction as a husband and a father. A husband and a father. He was willing to put himself into the position so that he could love Ruth as a husband and so that he could then redeem their family legacy by providing a son. By marrying Ruth and doing that whole thing. And then what we moved into from there is They invited in not only God's presence and God's people, but we see the prayer enter into the end of the scene there. Completely different strategy than Elimelech. Elimelech ended his family's story by removing himself from God's presence and God's people. 
Boaz is starting his family's legacy by bringing them into God's presence among God's people. That's what we're seeing play out. And so we come to the end of chapter 4 where we finally see the wedding. All right, this is the climax of the entire story is where we started with destruction and death and despair. We're now moving into redemption, restoration, and celebration. It's moving into such a beautiful moment in the book that finally represents for us the entire meta-narrative of the Scriptures. I mean, what, remember, like in Genesis, we start off and we get two chapters of shalom, right? We get two chapters of peace. And then we're met with destruction, death, and despair when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned. And then from there, God's working amongst His people throughout the entire Old Testament, working amongst His people in order to get to Jesus. In order to get to Jesus. And so this is a beautiful love story that we're seeing that really is painting the picture of the entire love story of what God has provided for us. And so we finally get to Boaz and Ruth being able, he's positioned himself into first position now, and he finally has the right to marry Ruth. And so we see it happen. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Bam! That's it. <laughs> they're, they're married, alright? That's, that's as much details as we get about the wedding. Alright? Now, it's also important to know that this book was written about 400 years after the actual story of Ruth and Boaz. And so it's some details are lost in translation, but they got married. They got married. They enter into covenant with one another. And this is actually right, about, right around 1300 B.C. for those who care about those facts. This is over 3,000 years ago. But they get married. God's biblical design is for people to get married. This is something to celebrate. All right? Regardless of the fact that our culture think that when people get married, that they're giving themselves over to destruction, death, and despair. They get married, and it's a time for us to celebrate this. It's why in Genesis 2, 24-25, God tells us, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and, and, and hold fast to his wife. That is covenant. They covenant to one another. And they shall become one flesh. And we'll get into that here in a second. That's the idea of consummation. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They're enjoying one another at the end of the day. This is something good to celebrate and is in God's design. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. Things are heating up a little bit. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now, interesting side note to, to be here because you might look at that and be like, man, honeymoon baby? Like right out of the gate? Like... Couldn't they have at least given her some time? We don't know specifically if this conception was literally right at that moment when, when he went into her. What we do know is that there's a, a, a time frame of about 70 years from what's recorded as Obed's birth. All right. So if they got married sometime around 1283 B.C., Obed's birth is actually recorded sometime around 1213 B.C. So, and again, but that's, that's conjecture for the most part. That's going based on the average of generations of 14 generations to 14 generations and so forth. They, they usually give about 80 to 70 years amongst generations. So sometime in a 70-year period, them loving each other, Obed is born. So we're not saying... 
This is a honeymoon baby right out of the gate, all right? But what we do see here is, is a pattern. We see a God, beautiful, designed pattern for relationships. And again, for us, knowing in our cultural climate right now, this is going to be different than our cultural climate right now. But what we see, and I say this because I know we've got some singles in our church, and I know we have a lot of young children in our church, and so this is also good for parents to know in the way that you bring up your children. But God has a beautiful design for how relationships are to progress. And the way that we're going to get, I'm going to give you four C's, all right? I'm going to go old school Baptist, so I'm going to give you four C's for how God has created and ordered relationships to work. And I'm specifically talking about romantic relationships, all right? And the way that he goes about it is what we'll start off with, calling it courting, all right? And you're looking at me right now thinking, Dwayne, that is so old school. Like I watched a recent movie or a TV show based on the idea of courting, and that's like turn of the century, 1800s, 1900s, like, like that's old. That's not the way we do things now, all right? Now it's, it's it, I don't even know because I'm 10 years removed from it, but but online dating, and, and, it's, and it's almost dating in isolation. You don't really uh, introduce the person to family or friends until it's Facebook official. I don't know. Like it, it's kind of, it has your own progression that you kind of work through. But the idea of courting is simply this from a foundational point, is you invite community into the process from the very beginning. You invite community into the process from the very beginning. All right? Now that community should be at least, and again, conjecture, I'm not like, slam, like slapping the, the Bible down on this and saying this is the way it should be, but I think this is a wise way to do it, is it should first and foremost include the family, secondly, it should include the faith family, and then third, bring friends in. Bring them in last, because <laughs> your friends sometimes are going to try to fast track your dating process and it's not going to go well. Like, for example, I was terrible at setting people up, all right? Like, it just never worked. I've never set anyone up that worked out, all right? I was, I'm not a good friend in that regard. But providing advice and, you know, from a faith family perspective, you can do that. Family, faith family, friends. Invite them in from the very beginning. I think it's wise. Because your friends, your faith family, your family, they see things that you can't see in a relationship. It's just true. That's the whole reason why even just biblically from a church perspective, God has created a community of believers to speak into your life because you can't see things. You have blind spots. You have areas in your life that you need to be encouraged in and rebuked in and corrected in and, 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 and preach the Bible. And, you know, there's things that you need to have the gospel spoken into your life that you don't see because they're blind spots, but others see. And so that's why... All throughout the Bible, you never see anything done in isolation. Nothing is ever done in isolation. It's always done within community. And you see that even in the difference between Elimelech and Boaz. Elimelech isolated his family away from God's presence and God's people. Boaz, when he goes to the gate and he finds John Doe, what's the first thing that he does? Hey, let me gather 10 elders of the city and let me bring them in as witnesses so that from the very beginning, everyone is able to pour into this deal that I'm trying to accomplish right now. They're able to witness it, see it, and pray over it right on the spot. And so it's good in progressing into a romantic relationship to have a courting period where you are inviting community into it. And then from courting, it moves into 
um, covenant. Marriage. If your dating relationships are not progressing towards marriage, you're wasting your time. What are you doing? Because what we actually see now, and, and I'll even ask this, because again, I know the idea of courting for a lot of people is so old school. Let me just ask the question, is our current way of doing things better? Is it working better? Because we find ourselves, for the first time, at least in American culture, for marriages is the minority. There are more single people than there are married people in our current, con current cultural climax. Context. Thanks for answering. <laughs> but that's because people are either dating too long and it's not working out. They're not ever pursuing any type of, of covenant. They're not ever pursuing marriage. They're not inviting community into the mix. And so they're just dating and breaking up and dating and breaking up and dating and breaking up. Or they're dating and if they actually get into covenant, it was never wise to get into covenant together, so then they're divorcing. And what we're seeing with that is, again, the highest rate of, of singles that our country has ever seen. I think it's just food for thought that our current way of doing things is not working. So is there a better way to do things? And I think this book provides for us a better way to do things, a better way to enter into romantic relationships. So if it's not moving towards covenant, then I think we should figure something else out. I think we should do something else. Covenant then leads into consummation. And we see that here in the text. They entered into covenant and then he went into her. They consummated the marriage by two flesh becoming one flesh. Two people becoming one. And what we currently see happening in our life is that there are too many people entering into that aspect of the relationship before covenant is ever there. And all it is ever going to do is create chaos, confusion, and collateral damage. That's all it is going to create. Because the act of consummation is not just something that's designed for physical pleasure. It's not. That's the way our current culture views it, is it's just something for physical pleasure. But it's so designed by God to, to, to literally hit every aspect of the way that He wired you. Emotional, physical, spiritual, all of those things come into play when two people become one. And so this is so so when you take the act outside of covenant it's just selfish. We're in covenant it's selfless. Outside of of covenant it is self-loving. Inside covenant it is self-giving. Outside of covenant, it is just sin. Inside covenant, it is celebration. It's the way God intended one of the greatest gifts that He's ever provided to be given to two people. And I think that's something that we need to preach to ourselves all the time. Because for those who are not in a covenant relationship, gifts of God are worth waiting for. They're worth waiting for. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why God has instilled periods of waiting almost in every aspect of the Bible. That's why we celebrate Advent every year. It literally means to wait. 
It provides for the opportunity for the fruit of the Spirit, patience to blossom in your life. Have a time of waiting. Consummation. Consummation then leads into conception. Conception. They bear a child. They're literally following into what God in His creative order designed. Two will leave, uh, two will leave their father and mother and become one flesh. They will be naked and unashamed and they will be fruitful and multiply. That's the order in which He designed and created everything to, to function and, and, and be fruitful. And so here's the thing with that. Children are a gift. They're a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. How many? That's between you and the Lord and your sanity. <laughs> but be fruitful and multiply. Children are a blessing. I know, it, you know, it, Marshall over here making the noise earlier. I know for you guys, you're thinking, gosh, like, Marshall, can you just be quiet? But like when I hear a kid in a worship service making a loud noise, like it does not distract me. It reminds me that they're alive. And they are to be celebrated. And that they are a good gift. And that they've been given to us as a gift. They're blessings to be cherished. And so we see this play itself out in verse 14 of how this child becomes a blessing to, re, to, to be a part of the process of redeeming this family. Verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Which again, that just speaking of the type of woman that Ruth is, seven sons is considered to be the greatest blessing in the Old Testament. Truly, for a family, a family who has had the hand of God blessed over them is for them to have seven sons. And if here the townspeople are telling Naomi, blessed are you because Ruth is better than seven sons. Exemplary woman has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this child, you, I mean, you can just see the transformation in Naomi. When she leaves and 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 has gone with Elimelech to Moab. When she comes back, how is the state of Naomi when she gets back to Bethlehem? Y'all remember? Despair. Legally, like Naomi means pleasant. And when she gets back to Bethlehem, legally has her name changed to Mara, which means bitter. And so she literally gets back and is just a bitter old woman. Like that's Naomi. And not only that, but just continues to do bad counsel and, and it's just... She's just bitter. And now you're finally seeing how the generosity of Ruth towards her, the love of Ruth towards her, the redeeming of her family from Boaz coming in and having the legal right to marry Ruth and to be able to take care of, of Naomi and Ruth. You, you finally see Naomi trusting in the providence of God and all that He has provided for her to now be back to herself. Her true self in God's presence and God's people. And for her to then take up this role of being a nurse to Obed. 
I mean, this is kind of like right out of the gate. She's like, give me that baby. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to tend to him. I'm going to do whatever he needs. I'm going to wipe his bottoms. I'm going to do whatever it looks like. I mean, it reminds me, like, my mother-in-law is in town. I'm not saying she's a bitter old mother-in-law. She's in town. She's a great mother-in-law. And my sons, last night, I mean, they are fighting over which one gets to sleep in bed with her. Like, is this, that's what they're doing. And so we just let them both do it. Like, it's, I don't know how that worked out. You probably didn't get any sleep, but... But I see this play itself out. It's a gift. And Naomi is living out this gift of the blessing of being able to have Obed. Because now where she used to not have any hope for the future and the legacy, I mean, the reason why the land was up for sale was because literally that was at her, at her desperate. The last thing I can do is sell the land to try to hopefully provide a little bit of income for a little, bit of, for a little while. And yet now, she's been fully restored. Fully restored. And I love this too. This is kind of, it's old school, but the old saying, it takes a village to raise. That's the way we're seeing it play out here. Who named, who named the kid? It wasn't Boaz. It wasn't Ruth. It wasn't Naomi. It was the townspeople. They came in and named Obed which literally means worshiper. They have a reason to worship. They have a reason to worship. Because what they see here is they play it out. Obed then fathers Jesse, and Jesse then fathers David, King David. And then it ends with these, these, uh, the genealogy here. Now these are the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Here's why genealogies matter. They reinforce the heart of God towards sinners and the marginalized. You see, Ruth being a Moabite is one instance, how God pours himself out to the marginalized and the vulnerable. But in addition to that, when you do the study on these genealogies, you're not finding anybody who are nailing the law, who are living out their life in the best way possible. You're seeing a list of a bunch of people with a bunch of problems that God is redeeming and restoring to be a part of His legacy of the gospel being good news for those who need it. For example, when you just look at Boaz's father, whose name is Salmon, does anybody know who Salmon's wife is? Anyone? Any biblical scholars out there? Rahab. Rahab. Rahab's a prostitute who belongs to the Canaanites. She's the exact representation of what Ruth is, essentially. And yet God redeems and restores and brings about Rahab when the Israelites come in to take over Canaan and to try to defeat the Canaanites. Rahab participates in hiding a couple of Israelite spies in her home in order for God to be able to come in and ultimately conquer the city. And she turns towards loving and worshiping the God of Israel so much so that God then redeems a Canaanite prostitute to be in the lineage and genealogy of Jesus Christ Himself. 
And not only that, she becomes the mother-in-law of Ruth. How fantastic is that? That Ruth then, at the end of this story, gets to have this extra little comfort thrown in of a mother-in-law who's able to come to her and say, I know exactly what you've been through. I know exactly who you are. And I know and have experienced how God has loved us well. What an extra just little comfort that God throws in there for Ruth as they continue to live out their story. Genealogies matter because it shows us God's heart towards those who are vulnerable and oppressed and marginalized and sinful and needing of the good news and the gospel. And that's what we see played out here. And we see it lead ultimately to Jesus. We see it lead to Jesus. The great redeemer. The great restorer. The one who is viewing all of this from above the loom and is weaving throughout all of the stories of Eve. There is going to be an offspring that is going to fix everything that was broken. Rahab, you're going to be a part of the family line where what you've done that you know have been mistakes are now going to be redeemed and restored and brought into the story so that you can see that Jesus comes to seek and save that which is lost. Ruth, you are not defined by your ancestral Moabite people. You are defined by what God has been doing in your life that you cannot see. As you're going out and working in the fields, He's dropping handfuls on purpose in front of you so that you can see His love and that it will continue to build your faith so that you can become the worthy woman that the people see that you are. Naomi, you do not have to be bitter anymore. You get to be restored back to being that pleasant mother-in-law who now is able to nurse and take care of and, and, and tend to your grandson Obed who is locking in the family legacy. And not only that, Naomi, you don't see it yet, but it's going to be a good family legacy because it's going to lead to a king of Israel who's going to then lead to the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. God's beautiful love story in the midst of this little love story. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your provision of faith. Your provision that you give to us every single day to be able to know you, to love you, to be taken care of by you. God, you're good. You're good and you're gracious to us. You're gracious to us when we don't deserve it. You're gracious. You're merciful. And we see that all wrapped up in this beautiful story here. Father, I know for many of us in this room, we, we're looking at the loom underneath and we're experiencing right now times in which we're maybe struggling financially, struggling relationally, might be a struggle in our marriages, might be a struggle in our companies, whatever it looks like. 
There's things that we're dealing with that maybe feel like sort of the beginning of Ruth where there's some famine there. Lord, my, my plea, my ask is that we would not leave your presence nor your people, but that we would press in deeper to your presence and your people so that as we work out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you are going before us and dropping handfuls on purpose in order for us to be provided for in whatever it is that we need right now. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And we ultimately thank you for giving us the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at